1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So that gives us a sense of what's coming. So 1 Corinthians 15 begins a new section, although Paul doesn't begin it like he's begun some of the other sections. As you recall, as we've been studying through, oftentimes he begins answering a question they had by saying, now concerning, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, chapter 8. Now concerning spiritual gifts, chapter 12, 13, 14. But this is a new topic. Resurrection is the topic, but he doesn't start it out by the classic kind of now concerning. So evidently, Paul understands that in the church in Corinth, this church that is full of pride, this church that is sort of behaving badly, carnally, there's an issue that has come up regarding the resurrection. I don't know about you, but sometimes I really enjoy talking to people. And sometimes I ask questions that are a little unnerving to people. One of my favorite questions is, what do you think happens when you die? Have you ever asked anybody that question? And you see them squirm, or maybe they have a belief. Maybe they believe in reincarnation, or maybe they believe in annihilation, that you die and that's it, the lights go out and consciousness is turned off and that's all there is. And then some people come up with wacky beliefs that I've never heard of. So usually my next question is, why do you believe that? Like, where did you get that belief? So if you're going to be the authority on what happens when you die, where, how did you come to that belief? And that's when you really see people start to squirm. Because, well, I, I, I dated a girl one time and her brother's cousin had a belief that, and so, you know, what are you talking about? That's the authority? That's an interesting question. It yields to very interesting discussion as you ask that question. In Corinth, there was a question that had arisen, a doubt. If you look down at verse 12, we're not going to get there today, but look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, very influential some among them, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we know the problem. How did Paul know the problem? We don't know exactly. It doesn't seem it was a question that they asked, but it does seem it has been brought to his attention that the church in Corinth had or was going astray, now proclaiming, believing that there's no resurrection. They were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection. Now, denial is not a new thing. We understand denial. How many of you have heard of someone who denies that the Holocaust ever took place? There is a group that are Holocaust deniers. They deny that, that this event actually happened. We have pictures, and today there are still, I believe, some people alive who their lives lived in the midst of that. 
Maybe they were part of the encampment, something like that. So there are those that have still a personal witness to that. But yet there are those that deny that it happened. How about moon landing deniers? We never really landed on the moon. You see, it was just a studio set, an elaborate hoax. And if you look at the pictures, you can see the shadow is here and the shadow is there. And clearly there was false lighting. The whole thing was a hoax. Have you heard of that? So there are those that have come to deny the moon landing. It doesn't matter that the people who walked on the moon talk about it and have recorded their testimonies, but they deny that we walked on the moon. Then there are the flat earthers. I don't even know what to say about that. Here's an interesting one. There are those, I learned this in Israel, there are those, mostly Muslim, who have denied that the Jews ever had a temple presence on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. See, now you go on our trips, we go to Jerusalem. As we come into Jerusalem on our bus, we get our first view. And what we see is the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And the Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. And the Muslims deny that historically there was ever a presence of a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they deny that. And then there are a more recent one from my discovery. There are 9-11 deniers. Have you heard of that? They don't deny that it happened. I mean, it's pretty hard to deny that the two buildings that used to be there are now gone. But what they say is it wasn't a terrorist attack. It was actually an elaborate government plan with timed explosives and detonations. It was the government that did it, and it wasn't a terrorist attack. So there are all of these situations where there are all these denials of things that had at once been clearly proclaimed and clearly understood. So what do you do with denialism? Well, you have to debunk it. And even then, some people just refuse to believe. But Paul begins chapter 15 to debunk resurrection denial in the Corinthian church. You see, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ was the clear and unopposed teaching of the early church, the apostles and all the people that were part of the early church. But now the Corinthians, under the influence of some others who are self-proclaimed prophets or self-proclaimed in their wisdom and puffed up, are denying that the resurrection, bodily resurrection, had happened. And so there were those at the time of Jesus that denied his resurrection. You know, you've been around church long enough to know there are those that say, well, Jesus only really swooned on the cross, the swoon theory. How many of you heard of the swoon theory? Well, he didn't really die on the cross. He just swooned and they put him in the grave and he woke up and he flexed his muscles and he rolled the stone away himself from the inside. And that's ridiculous. There are those that say the disciples stole the body and it wasn't that he was resurrected. And there are others that say the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And so there's all these theories that deny the resurrection. But the reality was, is there was an empty grave. And we go there. When we go, one of our best worship spots in Israel is the garden tomb. We break bread, share communion at the garden tomb. It is such a special time, and the tomb is still empty. The Pharisees, the Jews had two different sects. The Pharisees, they believed in resurrection. But the Sadducees, the other sect of Judaism, they denied resurrection, angels and spirits. And of course, the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, you read Paul's sermon in Athens on Mars Hill. And as he goes through his sermon and they're taking it in, but as soon as he talks about resurrection, they shut him off, they shut him down. His sermon ends abruptly and a few people get saved. 
So the resurrection has always been somewhat controversial, but not in the early church. It's controversial now. Around the country, around our country, in pulpits all over, there are pastors who deny that the resurrection ever happened. There are people that proclaim to be Christians that deny the validity, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So having dealt with chapter 14, having dealt with order in the church services, Paul now gets to, and it's hard to know exactly the connection, he now begins to address and to start debunking the denial of the resurrection. And he starts with the establishing of the consistency and the unity of the early church fathers, the disciples' teaching, and the early church's belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily and physically. See, some people believe that, well, I believe that when I die, my body just goes back, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but my spirit lives on. I'm going to live on in the clouds as a disembodied spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, and so will you, that you will have in eternity a real, literal body that you will dwell in. What is that body going to be like? How does that work? I was a biology major. So the biology of resurrection kind of short circuits some things. And Paul's going to address that very question. I don't know about you, but if I can get past Genesis chapter 1, I'm okay with resurrection. In Genesis chapter 1, God forms Adam. How's he form him? From the dust of the earth. And then what's he do? He breathes life. And Adam becomes a living being. Well, resurrection is certainly a lot easier than that. He's got better starting materials. So if you can believe that in the beginning, God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, then breathes life into his nostrils, I mean, life has to come from somewhere, then I can believe that God can breathe life back into a dead body and give, actually, it's not just that same body. That's the thing. You get a new body, an eternal body that's meant to live on eternity. Steve, you're blowing my mind. How does that look? I don't know. But Paul's going to address that question here. So I suggest you keep coming, stay tuned for the rest of the chapter. And we'll get there. But for now, he's beginning with this establishing what they were taught about resurrection. So he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you, I'm declaring to you again, the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So Paul's been, well, by the time he comes to Corinth, it's about 20 years from the time of Jesus' resurrection. And in that 20 years, there has been an established teaching in the church. There's even an early creed that the church shared with each other. Here's what we believe, and here's how it's stated simply. And we're going to read that right here. So Paul says, when I came to you 20 years after the resurrection, I declared to you good news. He's going to remind them what that good news was. That good news involves Jesus Christ is alive. We have a living hope. And if that's not true, then nothing else we believe is true. And Paul's going to go down that road. He's going to say, well, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? That's next week. But for now, he says, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you. When I came, this is what I preached, and this is what you received. You took it to yourself. And currently, 
This is that in which you stand. The gospel you received is the gospel you continue to believe. It's easy. I like that. It's not this ever-moving target. We know what we believe. And it's going to be laid out here in very simple terms. And I stand on the same things today, belief-wise, that I believed 25 years ago when I got saved. I haven't changed. Things I believed when I got saved are still the same things I believe. I may understand them a little bit differently. I may understand them a lot better. But it's the same things. And that's what he's telling the Corinthians. Verse 2 says, by which also you are saved. He seems to have in mind their actual salvation, their resurrection, their glorification. But he says, if you hold fast, that word which I preach to you. Now remember, there's an anti-Paul faction in Corinth. Remember that from the first chapter, there were those that were aligning with Peter and those that were aligning with Apollos. And it seems there were some definitely aligned against the apostle Paul. So part of what's happening here is that group, that anti-Paul group is having a great influence in the church. So Paul says, when I came, this is what I preached to you. And you got to hold fast to it because there are those in the church that are trying to steer them in a different direction. Now, again, the word hold fast, if you talk about this word and its usage in terms of ship navigation or being a ship's captain, you're steering a ship and the wind is blowing one direction and the waves are knocking in another direction and it's a storm and you've got to hold that ship on course. Can you get the picture? And that takes energy. It takes work to hold fast, to stay the course especially if the winds of doctrine are blowing in different directions and the winds are blowing in Corinth and there are those trying to, well, steer the Corinthians in a new direction. And Paul is reminding them, church in Corinth, and can I remind you, church in Fluvanna, stay the course. The pendulum swings this way, the pendulum swings that way. I don't know about you, but when I'm at Food Lion, I'm always trying to find the fastest line. Do you do that? or Walmart, and I'm in this line, but man, that line looks faster. So I jump over to that line only to find out that there's the guy I was behind and he's already headed out. I'm still three people deep. I should have stayed where I was. Has that ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. It's God's divine judgment on my impatience. (laughs) Whatever line I jump to, that becomes the slowest line. So if you're ever with me in food line, don't get in my line. Because God is disciplining me. Look, don't jump ship. Don't change direction. The pendulum swings this way. The pendulum swings that way. I am more convinced than ever that what we believe is the truth. And there is a world out there floundering and flailing, trying to figure out. I mean, everybody is squirrely. Do you know what I mean when I say squirrely? You're driving down the road and there's the squirrel in the middle of the road and he can't make up his mind which way to go. And this way, that way, this way, that way, and then boom, he's an ex-squirrel. It's easy to get squirrely in these days. There's a lot of people that are squirrely, just running this way, that way. We have an eternal truth. It has been proven year after year after century after age. God knows the end from the beginning Where else are you going to go? Jesus and Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So Paul says, you've got to stay the course. And the danger was that they would 
not stay the course. That's why he says, unless you believed in vain. It doesn't matter what you proclaimed 17 years ago. What matters is what you proclaim today. And what you say you believe actually has an impact in your life. That's what it means to believe in vain. Well, I said I believed it, but I didn't really believe it. I said I believed it, but it never really had an impact in my life. So Paul is desperate for them to stay the course, saying that, well, you believed it then, and you have to keep believing it now, or then whatever you said you believed is just empty anyway. And that's what Paul says to them. And now he gives them, reminds them, reminds us of this Christian creed. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, primarily, that which I also received. So Paul didn't make it up. The gospel doesn't originate with the apostle Paul. It originates with God. Paul received it where? He received it from Jesus himself. And then he spends some time on his own. And then the book of Galatians tells us he went and he met with the apostles in Jerusalem with Peter and with James and with the others. And they compared notes. And Paul says, they added nothing to my faith. So whatever Paul was believing, whatever he had heard from Jesus, it was completely and utterly in line with what the other apostles were teaching and proclaiming. The early church was very consistent. So Paul says, I didn't originate it, but I'm just giving you what I received. And it's the word for receiving a tradition. It's a very formal education word for a teacher to pass on something, not just to hear, but to be embraced by his students. So this early Christian creed, again, Paul's telling them this is established and it's only 20 years after the resurrection. You can trace this back to as close to as about six or seven years after the resurrection, this creed had been established and was already in use by the early church. And what is this creed? Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. And number three, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That was the simple statement of faith of the early church. And it's still our simple statement of faith. And again, only 20 years from the time of Jesus, a very short amount of time. So what Paul is saying now is the scriptures predicted the resurrection. First of all, he says, Christ died for or on behalf of our sins according to the scriptures. So he lays out, number one, the physical death of Jesus. So did Jesus just die spiritually or theoretically? Or did he die physically? Somebody say physically. Physically. He died physically. And it wasn't a random, didn't die just as a fringe martyr. Why did he die? He died for our sins. And that's what the Bible says. Where does the Bible say that? Remember, you can't look New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. You had to get the gospel out of the Old Testament. Did you know you can do that? Did you know you can get the gospel out of the Old Testament? Well, Steve, where would this be? This would be Isaiah 53. Check it out. Isaiah 53 says about the servant, the Messiah. This was the crazy thing. Surely the Messiah, he has borne our griefs, literally our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced 
For our transgressions, that's our sickness. It's a spiritual sickness. The sickness is sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for my twistedness. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, you know it, church, we have been healed. We've been healed. And that's what Isaiah said. And that was clearly understood by the early church, by the apostles, to be speaking of Jesus, his death on a cross. You know, you meet a lot of good people. I've met tons of good people. I've never been to a funeral where the person who died is not going to heaven. Never. Nothing to do with God, no knowledge of God, no interest in God. But when it comes time for the funeral, we love to comfort ourselves by knowing that that person is going to heaven. And people think they're going to heaven because they're good people. So you've got to define that anyway. That's a whole other story. But the issue is in our lives, how many good things we do. The issue is the wrong we've done. What do we do with that? How do you account for that? How do you make amends for that, the wrong that we've done? The world has no answer for that. The sorrow of the world produces guilt. But the Bible has an answer for that. And the answer is Jesus Christ. God's great love for us, his desire to be in a personal relationship with us, his son takes on himself my sins to reconcile me with God. He clears the way, clears the path so I can be back in a relationship with the living God. All of my sins forgiven, my life washed whiter than snow. I'm born again. I have a new identity I have a new family. I'm no longer in Adam's family. Who wants to be in the Adam's family anyway? Unless your name is Adam's, then it's okay. That he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was crucified or died for our sins. That he was buried. So there was the literal, physical burial of the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they take his body down off the cross. They wrap him in linen cloths. They put all the spices in there. Then they put him in Joseph's tomb. So his literal physical body was laid in the tomb. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Where is this? Where's the resurrection in the Bible? Well, for starters, Psalm 16, verses 10 to 11. This is quoted all over the New Testament. Peter quotes it in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Psalm 16, clearly a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Savior. And it says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is the Messiah speaking. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. So that psalm teaches that David wrote prophetically about the Messiah whose body would never see corruption. So we see that to be the case. Jesus buried, he's three days in the tomb, and what happens? He rises from the dead. His body does not decay. When they go, do they see his body and go, oh, he must have risen spiritually? No, the body is missing, right? You're with me, you've been around church. The body's gone. And when they see Jesus, do they see him in a body or is he just a ghost? They see his body. I mean, he's eating fish with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Come on, tell me, church, ghosts don't eat fish. 
It just like falls through or something. I don't know. How did ghost teeth even chew? Now, this is important. We laugh and we kind of think about the reality of this. But the important thing is, and on a number of levels, this is important. Jesus' resurrection guarantees mine. I expect, even though I don't understand it, I expect to dwell eternally, fully bodily, with the ability to embrace, with the ability to live, to experience in an incorruptible body. This body, no, 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 no. This body is destined for the grave. I don't take this body with me to heaven. To go to heaven, I need to get rid of what I have here. This is my earth suit. My eternal heavenly suit has long flowing hair. You know that, right? You're going to see me. You're going to go, is that Steve? (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I'm 22. But we think about it and we realize there's so many things I just don't know. I've got a lot of questions and Paul's not going to answer all the questions, but he's going to give us some really cool things to think about as we move through this chapter. But notice the good news It all revolves around Jesus, that Jesus died for my sins, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. My whole life, my whole story is I've just connected myself to Christ, that his story becomes my story. I was crucified with Christ when he was crucified. I was buried with him in baptism when he was buried, when I aligned myself to him. And I was resurrected when I aligned myself to from him. I will live forevermore. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. I don't expect to die. I just change addresses. That's our story as Christians. So he reminds them of what the scripture says. And then he says, if that's not enough, let's get to some eyewitness accounts. Verse five says, and that he was seen, and he's going to use that word four times here, eyewitness accounts. Now, there are some in the field of forensic psychology that work in conjunction with investigators and lawyers and courtrooms and police forces and all that, and they study the validity, the reliability of eyewitness accounts. And some say that, well, eyewitness accounts are good. They've been important throughout history, but sometimes we remember things wrong. Our memories can get it wrong. So there's some questions about, can we really trust eyewitness accounts. And just in case you had that question about the resurrection, Paul uses the word seen, which is a number of Greek words that can be translated to see. This one means to gaze like with your eyes wide open at something that is remarkable. That the people he's speaking of gazed in wonder at Jesus Christ being alive. That he was seen by Cephas. So even if people doubt Paul's trustworthiness, they trusted Peter. I mean, Peter was one of the original 12. Paul wasn't. And he'll have to defend that in a little bit. But Peter, man, he was the big guy. He was the big kahuna. He preached at Pentecost. He's more trustworthy. So Peter saw Jesus alive after he'd been buried and rose from the dead. And then all the disciples, the 12 is the technical term for the group of his original disciples. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, you know, fallen asleep means they died. 
So remember, we've only got a 20-year span in our lives. How many of you remember where you were when 9-11 happened? You remember that? We watched it play out on TV. We watched the airplanes fly in. I was in a barn over near Keswick, and they brought the TV out and put it there, and we just sat. Everything stopped, and we just sat, and we watched. And we remember, and we can tell our kids what we saw. And there were some that were there when it happened. They were working in the office building next door. They were there in the city. But over time, all those that saw it will die off. And there will only be second or third-hand accounts. A thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries, we have the video, but all the first-hand eyewitness accounts will have passed away. But at the time when Paul is sharing with them about the resurrection, we've only got 20 years. So there were people that saw Jesus alive, not just one occurrence, not just a couple of people over here, not just a person over there, but you've got a number of eyewitness accounts, a number of different people, and then you've got 500 people at one time who saw him alive. And this was commonly understood. And Paul even says, if you want to validate the truth, go ask them, because some of them are still alive. The majority of them were still alive at the time. You could go up and knock on Bob. There's Bob and Judy. Bob and Judy lived in Jerusalem. They're not good Jewish names, I guess. Uh, I could have picked better names, but there they are, and they were there. Tell me, did you see Jesus alive? Oh, yes, absolutely. We saw him alive. We were a whole bunch of other people that were worshiping Jesus, and he was alive. We touched him. He was there. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Thomas, put your finger in my wounds. Put your hand in my side. This is physical evidence. And he says, if you want, folks in Corinth, get yourself a ticket, go on up to Jerusalem. You can talk to some people that saw Jesus alive firsthand. You can ask them. And after that, he was seen by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and then by all the apostles. So whatever other church leaders at the time other people saw him. So he just goes through this whole establishment of the trustworthiness. Even if they don't trust Paul, he's not asking them to make a huge, unfounded leap of faith, blind faith to believe in resurrection. Do you see that? He's saying our belief is well-founded on the scriptures and eyewitness testimony. Listen, gang, what we believe is very, very secure. It's very secure. Do we understand it completely? Maybe not. But there's a lot of stuff in this life I don't understand. But that doesn't make it not true. If God is the giver of life, then resurrection is no problem. And if resurrection is a problem for God, then we better get a different God. So now Paul begins to address the anti-Paul group that I referred to. Verse 8, he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So you remember Paul's Damascus Road experience. He's on his way to persecute the church. He's trying to drag people to prison for their belief in Jesus. And on that road, he has an encounter with Jesus. Now, maybe you read that in the book of Acts and you think, well, it was just a vision of Jesus. What Paul says is the living Jesus showed himself to Paul. Very unique situation, and Paul knows that. You see, Paul didn't walk with the original disciples of Jesus. He came along later. So he didn't walk for three years. He wasn't subject to the teaching. He wasn't sent out two by two with the other disciples and casting out demons and healing people. 
And then coming back to Jesus, he wasn't part of all the miracles that Jesus did. He comes along later and he's very aware that may be why the church is doubting his apostleship. So now he says, I saw Jesus too. That was the validation for the ministry, for Paul's ministry. I saw Jesus alive myself, but it wasn't like the others. It was as one born out of due time. It's a word that means a miscarriage, an abortion, or a baby being born before it's fully gestated. Really, it's come to mean, the word is very specific, and it really comes to mean something that is deformed or grotesque. Now, why does Paul choose to use that word? It seems that what he means by that is that he didn't have time to cook a long time with the disciples. He wasn't there for the three years. His discipleship, his ministry, his apostleship is different than theirs. He didn't have the time to spend with Jesus that they did. But it could be he chooses that very odd and distinct word because that may be a derogatory term that they used of the Apostle Paul. So he's just taking it and owning it to himself. You say I'm grotesque, then so be it. Maybe I am. But, he says, verse 9, I recognize that I am the least of all the apostles. For those that are doubting him, for those that are questioning he says, I know I'm the least of all the apostles who I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, in a sense, I'm with you. I understand why you're doubting me. I doubt myself sometimes. I see my life. I'm the least of the apostles. This passage, this is a fantastic passage. This passage has spoken to my heart many times over the years. And it's a really good sense as we read it of what humility really is. So Paul starts out, he's not defending himself. He's not elevating himself. He says, look, when it comes to the apostles of Peter and James and John and Andrew and all Philip and all the rest, he says, I'm the least of all of them. You know, if you guys say to me, well, the pastor of our last church, he was a really good speaker. I know, I know, I'm doing my best. I'm the least of all the pastors. I don't have a seminary training. I don't have all the degrees and the certificates. And I've owned this verse myself. I think, man, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm just swinging a hammer, putting shoes on horses' feet. Start teaching Bible studies. And at that time, 15 years ago, or a little more than that, there wasn't all these church plants we have around Charlottesville now. And I remember somebody that I knew from church that heard we were going to plant a church. And they came up to me and they said, can you do that? And I said, I don't know, but we're going to find out. We'll see. But so in a sense, I've connected with this verse because I feel the Apostle Paul. I'm the least of all the pastors. and not worthy to be called a pastor, an apostle, Paul says, because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, you don't know how many people I've met that are serving God that say, Pastor, you don't know what I used to be. If you knew what I used to be, you wouldn't let me be your pastor. But if I knew what you used to be, we wouldn't let you come to church here. I say that tongue-in-cheek to say we're all in the same boat. We all have a past. And Paul was well aware of his past. Have you ever prayed like, God, why didn't you save me before I did all that stupid stuff I did? Anybody ever prayed that? Anybody ever burned some bridges, hurt some people that you wish you could take it back? You wish you could go back in time before you did all that and get saved? I mean, in a sense, when we get saved, it's the most joyous time in our lives because we know the truth. But sometimes... Knowing the truth hurts because we see what we did, the people we hurt, the bridges we burned, the things we said, the things we believed. 
And that's what Paul says. He says, I look back on my life. I can't even believe God would choose me because I was persecuting his people. I mean, God should choose better than that. But God knew exactly who he was choosing. And Paul would become a trophy. It would be said of God, if he can save me, Paul would say, then he can save anybody. And I think for Christians, this is important. Part of humility is knowing where you've come from. Some of you have been saved 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And you forgot that when you got saved, you were like that tax collector in the temple, pounding your chest going, God, be merciful to me, a wretched sinner. And now you've been saved a while. God's cleaned you up. You've learned a thing or two. And now you look back at other people and you go, huh, you kind of lift your nose. You forget what you used to be. Have you ever been to a church where they're hard on sinners? I mean, just somebody comes in the door and they've got tattoos or they don't have their act together. They're dressed a little off or their language is a little off compared to what you're used to. And you go, oh, what are they doing here? They need to be here. That's where you used to be. That's what I used to be. I didn't know nothing from nothing. How many of you ever said, I'm glad I ain't what I'm going to be, but I ain't what I used to be. Amen. I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul could get into the Eeyore mentality and go, well, God could never use me. I'm no good. You don't know how I used to live, pastor. Woe is me. And Paul could have said that. But instead, he says, but to the church in Corinth, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle. And you can't change that because God chose me. And now I'm just living out what God did in my life. Amen to that? Doesn't matter if they reject him. He doesn't say, well, I studied real hard, got a master's degree, and that's why I am what I am. He doesn't say it was my hard work, my determination, my hours of study, my ambition, my networking and getting to know the right people. He says it was by the grace of God that God gave me a gift. And listen carefully. The proper response to a gift is gratitude. Gratitude. Grace is the root word of gratitude. Gratitude means you've got something you didn't deserve or didn't earn. Let's put this in agricultural terms. Are you with me still, church? Agricultural terms. Christian, he gets an acre of land from God. And Richie gets three acres, and the Sullivans get 10 acres. And now God says, I'm giving this to you as a gift. Go for it. And well, Kristen says, man, I had a little apartment in Charlottesville, but now I've got an acre of land and I can grow some stuff. And he just sets out gardening and gardening. I'm sorry, Sullivans, you're going to be the butt of the joke in this. It just worked out that way. That's why nobody sits here because this is the pastor's illustration zone right here, like splash zone. This is pastor's illustration. So Christian Man, he gets to work farming. He works hard day, night. And five months later, I mean, you look at his field and it is just, there's flowers and there's food. There's tomato plants up over the fence. And he has made a lot of his acre. And Richie, you know, he's got a little more land and, and he's done work and he's got some stuff. But the Sullivans, this got lazy. They're playing video games all the time. Just wasting away his time. And so there's their piece of land that God gave them. And by the way, the Sullivans are awesome people. Right. So it's like, this is totally, that's why this is funny because they're awesome people and I don't want to be misunderstood. Just an illustration. But the reality is, is that you can take the gift God has given you 
and take it for granted and do nothing with it. I know for me, I look at my family, I look at the life God has given me. I didn't deserve it. I mean, I was going down the wrong road. And I don't know about you, but God, he got a hold of my life. He convicted me of my sins. I repented. I turned to God. I started being with the people of God. I started learning his word. And God has built a life for me and my family that I could have imagined or described to you. The joy, the peace, the love. So because of that, the banner over our family is the one to whom much is given from them, much is required. All by the grace of God. I would have none of it if it was not for God. So Paul says, so this is the other side of humility. I'm not what I used to be. And what I am, I am by the grace of God. He doesn't deny that he's an apostle. He says, I am. I'm a pastor. You're stuck with me because blame God. If you've got a problem with it, blame God. He takes horseshoers and makes them pastors. Why does he do that? I don't know. He should use seminarians and all that kind of thing. And he does. But I'm just telling you my story. But this is what Paul says. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, God's grace, the things he gave to Paul, the calling, the giftedness. Paul says, I didn't take it for granted. I wonder how many of you sitting here today, following up on chapters 12, 13, and 14, spiritual gifts, I wonder how many of you it would be looked at in your life and say that the grace of God was in vain to you. That God poured out his grace and your 20 acres, even your one acre, it's empty. There's no fruit. Because you've taken it for granted. You've ignored what God has done for you. You've assumed that you did it by your hard work and it was all, you're a self-made woman or a self-made man and you've ignored the good gifting of God in your life. Or you're like Christian who's just been like the apostle Paul and Paul says, God's grace was not in vain toward me, but I labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So Paul's motivation for life, listen carefully. Paul's motivation for ministry was gratitude to God for the life that he'd given him. Is that your motivation? Does anything motivate you to do something for God? Maybe you just don't know the grace. Maybe you just take for granted the life you have. Maybe you just forget that the way you think, the life you have, the birth you had, being born in America, the money you have, the opportunity to earn an income, all that is by the grace of God. And any other good gift you have is by the grace of God. And yet Sunday comes along and you go, I'm kind of tired to go to church today. Are you kidding me? Paul says, I worked hard. This guy traveled 10,000 miles to spread the gospel. He said, I am so thankful for what I have. I can't bear to think that other people don't know what I know. It pains me to think that people around the world, people in our community, don't have access to the truth or don't know it. So the motivation of his life, do you see why I love this passage? Paul was a hard worker. And even the work wasn't Paul's. It was God's grace in me. And that's what drives him. So he says to the Corinthians, he says to me, says to you, look, you may not like me as an apostle, but that's what God did. I know I didn't have the same ministry, the same time as these other guys, but yet by the grace of God, I am what I am. And therefore I am going to work hard to spread the gospel. I'm going to work hard to let people know about Jesus. And he wraps it up in verse 11 by saying, therefore, whether it was I, Paul himself, or they, Peter, James, John, whoever else, 
So we, notice that, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul's preaching to the Corinthians who are going astray, who are being led off course. He's telling them, hold fast to what I brought you because what I brought you is in line with what all the other apostles are teaching and what all the other churches are believing. And it's in line with what we believe 2,000 years later. Isn't that cool? And it's trustworthy, and you can take it to the bank. 